It's time to get started. You are in the right place at the right time. And uh, thank you for being here. We're going to have a wonderful next couple of hours together. One hour together. <laughs> so, um, as, as we're started, uh, starting, as you know, this is about Martin Lloyd-Jones. And just to maybe uh, to help you with your note-taking, just to let you know, in the bookstore here at Grace... Uh, this book that I've written on Martin Lloyd-Jones is available, and it's on sale today. I cannot even buy my own book at this price, all right? It, it's 40% off, so they're, they're just giving it away. Um, so you get, you, you get what you pay for, okay? So, <laughs> But uh, it's called The Passionate Preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And interestingly enough, I spoke um, with his daughter, who is still alive, a couple of months ago on her birthday. She lives in London, and I called her to wish her happy birthday. And she had just reread the book, and I'll just pass this along from her. She said, you have captured my father better than the other biographies. And I think it takes a preacher to write about a preacher, uh, that you've been in the battle, and you've, you, you know the pressures that are upon uh, a pastor and so it was my joy to spend a year um, researching Martin Lloyd-Jones and studying his life and ministry. And so uh, I just commend the book to you. Uh, I think it would be of great help. And for any who are considering uh, ministry, gospel ministry, being called into the ministry, there is a chapter in here on how to discern uh, a call to preach and a call to ministry. And that might be of special interest to you. And I use Lloyd-Jones, how he processed that decision in his own life that led him into the ministry. Well, having said that, let's begin in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we ask now for your assistance, for the ministry of your Spirit to be mightily at work within each and every one of us, channel and guide my thoughts, make my words acceptable to those, my friends here, and I pray that you would bless now this hour. You have something to say to each and every one of us, and I ask that we each would be most receptive to that. Father, we pray this in the mighty, powerful, saving name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let me begin by asking this question, why would we be studying Martin Lloyd-Jones today? Uh, I have been greatly helped by studying great Christian leaders in the past. It, it, it's really like Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Sarah. And to study church history really brings it into the present, by faith, even Martin Lloyd-Jones. There are three things that I would say to you about Martin Lloyd-Jones by way of introduction, why he would be worthy of our focused thought in this session and number one, I think that we can safely say that the recent resurgence in expository preaching can be traced back to the pulpit of Westminster Chapel in London under the preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, he was really the first to step out of the crowd, to step forward into a pulpit and to preach in an expository style in a visible place, to have really a an influence not just on London and not just on England, but a, but a global influence. 
The second reason why I think he is worthy of our thought today is you and I have lived through over the last 40 and 50 years what is known as the Reformed resurgence. There has been a reform to a return to Reformed doctrine that has long been the, the backbone of the church. Those eras of church history that have been the strongest have been when the church has stood upon the fundamental core truths of the Reformation. And it was Martin Lloyd-Jones, I believe, who really lit the fuse, lit the match that struck the fuse that became what we have seen, the Reformed resurgence. And men like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and James Montgomery Boyce and men like that have really been a a second-tier level uh, leaders in this, but the point man, the tip of the spear, was Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he really brought the church back to a doctrinal orthodoxy that has stood the test of time for, for centuries. And so we really, in many ways, stand on his shoulders and are the benefit of his powerful pulpit. And the third reason that I think he is worthy of our focus here is he is the man who really resurrected the Puritans and put them back before the public eye. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones started what was known as the Puritan Conference. And what what is interesting to me is that this church will be hosting the Puritan Conference uh, this fall. I will be here to preach in that conference. And there will be other men who will come and be a part of this conference. But this really is just an echo of what started long ago with Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was so key in uh, establishing the Banner of Truth publishing house that began to reprint the great classic Puritan works as well as the Reformers and those involved in the Great Awakening. So the debt that we owe to Martin Lloyd-Jones is enormous as it relates to expository preaching, as it relates to the sovereignty of God in salvation, Reformed doctrine, and as it relates to a a restored interest in church history and an interest in the Puritans, which arguably may have been the greatest uh, century uh, of preachers on a broad scale that has left its fingerprints on the church to this day. It was none other than John MacArthur, who said about Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was without question the finest biblical expositor of the 20th century. I would just add, it takes one to know one. In fact, when the final chapter of church history is written, I believe the doctor will stand as one of the greatest preachers of all time. One of my mentors, R.C. Sproul, has said, Martin Lloyd-Jones was to the, 20th, to the 20th century England what Charles Spurgeon was to the 19th century England. A man deeply committed to verse-by-verse preaching of the Word of God with a pathos, and that's a key word, with a pathos that is rare in the history of the church. What that means is not only did he have sound doctrine, but he delivered it with zeal and a fire in his bones, and with passion that spread like a wildfire from the pulpit to the pew. 
that excited the hearts of those who, who listened to his preaching. Lloyd-Jones grew up in, in Wales and really in the wake of the Welsh Revival. And he understood that there must be more than just doctrinal orthodoxy. It's not enough just to be right. That, that orthodoxy must ignite your soul with love and passion and devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ. The great, greatest commandment is that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Lloyd's, Lloyd-Jones' preaching e- e- evoked an emotional response to the truth that was being preached. It, he, it wasn't as though he was standing in a library just dispensing information, but there was a, a, a burning passion within his own soul when he stood to preach that affected the affections of the listener that they too were excited for God. The word enthusiasm is two Greek words put together, in theos, in God. And all true enthusiasm is affected by God. R.C. Sproul, a dynamic figure in his own right, understood that about Lloyd-Jones. It was John Piper who said, Martin Lloyd-Jones combined Calvin's love of truth and sound Reformed doctrine with fire and passion of the 18th century Methodist revival. He was, by God's grace and gifting, a great preacher. Uh, Lloyd-Jones was well identified with the Puritans of the 17th century. And he was also identified with the reformers of the 16th century. But Lloyd-Jones said, I'm not a 16th century man, and I'm not a 17th century man. I'm an 18th century man. And it was in the 18th century that George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, it was used by God to ignite the great awakening. And it was the zeal and the passion of those preachers that produced the greatest spiritual revival that has ever been seen on American soil. Lloyd-Jones understood that. He understood there can be a cold orthodoxy. There can be a cold Calvinism, that there must be the, the fire and the heat and the fervency that accompanies sound doctrine in the hearts and the lives of the people. And John Piper and J.R.C. Sproul singled that out. In fact, Lloyd-Jones would ask the question, what is preaching? It is theology on fire, and you must not have one without the other. Uh, the Puritans used to put it this way, there needs to be a fire in the pulpit, and a fire gives off two elements. A fire gives off light, and it gives off heat. There must be in the pulpit the light of truth, the light of sound doctrine, the, the illumination of the Word of God, but it must come with the heat of passion and, and fiery zeal in the delivery. In other words, it's not just what you say, but how you say it. 
And it is passion that is, makes the truth contagious and burn its way into the soul of the listener rather than putting them to sleep. So that's what these men recognized in Martin Lloyd-Jones. And as I'm here this week teaching in the Doctor of Ministry program at the Master's Seminary, it is our fundamental commitment to just add more gas to the fire of these preachers who have flown here from around the world, that they would go back with the passion that has been exemplified in the life of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Well, let me give you a quick walk through his life, and this is like putting my arms around the Atlantic Ocean. Um, we may all drown, but uh, th- this, this is a lot to cover. But uh, let me give you as best of a survey as I can. Uh, to begin with, Lloyd-Jones was born at the end of the 19th century, December 20th, 1899. He grew up in a, just a middle-class home. His father uh, owned a, a dairy shop and had cows and went through some financial hard times and moved the family providentially to London in 1914. And there in London, they joined a church, a Calvinistic Methodist church. That, that may sound like an oxymoron to you, <laughs> which which it does, which it is. But uh, originally, the Methodist movement was founded by George Whitfield, along with John Wesley. And George Whitfield was strong in the doctrines of grace, deeply steeped in Reformed theology. And the first Methodist movement really was committed to the doctrines of grace. And so, Lloyd-Jones as a young man, joins this Calvinistic Methodist church and sits under strong preaching, but he is unconverted. Even under the truth, he he has not yet come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. At age 16, he was accepted into the training program at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. He was somewhat of of a child prodigy, a brilliant stunningly brilliant mind. And St. Bartholomew's Hospital is right there in London, Smithfield in London, and it was the premier uh, teaching hospital, not just in England, many would argue in the entire world. And so God just sovereignly positioned Lloyd-Jones there in London uh, at, this, uh, at this place, and, and he distinguished himself. He graduated from St. Bartholomew's Hospital at age 21, with a degree in, in medicine, and, and soon thereafter, he received a Bachelor of Medicine in Surgery uh, with distinction. Uh, the president of the college said that Lloyd-Jones was one of the finest clinicians I have ever encountered. At age 22, something of a young phenom, he became a member of the Royal College of Surgeons and also the Royal College of physicians. I mean, just the stamp of medical greatness was upon Lloyd-Jones. That's why he's affectionately referred to this day as the doctor, because he was a true medical doctor. In fact, he had so distinguished himself that Sir Thomas Horder, who was 
the physician to the king of England, who was the physician to the royal family, tabbed Lloyd-Jones to be his close assistant and was grooming him in this skyrocketing career for Lloyd-Jones to practice medicine at the highest level of society and, and, and politics. At age 23, Lloyd-Jones received a doctorate of medicine from London University. At age 24, he received a research aid to study a heart condition that uh, distinguished himself in print as one of the leading medical minds of, uh, of his generation. And he was just on a skyrocketing path to the highest level Virtually anyone would have wanted to have changed places with Lloyd-Jones. And at this point, he's just still in his, in his middle 20s. And yet God had a way of breaking through into his life, as God does in many of our lives. And it often involves adversity. We, we rarely prosper and develop under prosperity. It's usually under adversity in life that we advance spiritually. And that was the case with Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones became deeply disturbed because of two deaths. His father passed away, and his brother unexpectedly passed away. And it brought his life to a a standstill virtually. And in that, he came under a deep sense of, why am I here? What's this about? And he came to this stunning realization that as he is making people well, he is simply giving them health to commit more sin. That as he would attend to the royal family and the the upper level of society who lived without thought of God, that he was simply making them better to go back to their life of sin so that they could sin all the more. And the wheels are turning inside of of Lloyd-Jones, and at the same time, he is coming under deep conviction of sin himself, an intense soul-searching time. He realizes it's not enough just to be in church, and it's not enough just to have a thin veneer of religiosity that there was something missing deep in his soul, and it was to know God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lloyd-Jones came to a crisis point in his life, and he was converted, converted to Christ. And Lloyd-Jones said, for many years, I thought I was a Christian when in fact I was not. Let me just pause for a moment. I've been a pastor for almost 40 years. I have seen, by the grace of God, hundreds of people come to faith in Christ under the preaching of the Word of God. I would say 19 out of 20 were church members who thought they were Christians until they sat under the strong preaching of the Word of God, and God found them out. So Lloyd-Jones said, for many years I thought I was a Christian, when in fact I was not. It was only later that I came to see I I had never been a Christian, and I became one. 
What I needed, listen to this, what I needed was preaching that would convict me of sin. Let me just pause for a moment. No one will ever be converted until they know they are a wretched sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God. No one will ever be converted simply because they're lonely, simply because they're insecure, simply because they lost a job. That will not get anyone through the narrow gate. Jesus came to die for only one kind of person. He came to die for sinners. And that is why we must come under the conviction of sin. John 16, verse 8, Jesus said that He will send the Helper and He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and, and judgment, not of loneliness, insecurity, and a bad job, but sin, the sin of unbelief. So Lloyd-Jones said, what I needed was preaching that would convict me of sin, but I never heard this. The preaching we had was always based on the assumption that we were all Christians, just simply because we agree with the doctrinal statement, just simply because we're in church, just simply because we are involved in some kind of of service. And so Lloyd-Jones in his mid-twenties, is dramatically converted to Jesus Christ. And let me say this, every conversion is a dramatic conversion. As you go from death to life, from darkness to light, every conversion is a dramatic conversion, and this would leave its stamp on Lloyd-Jones for the rest of his, for the rest of his life, that as he would preach, he would do the work of an evangelist to win people to Christ as he would stand in the pulpit. Well, soon thereafter, at age 26, Lloyd-Jones feels the call of God into the ministry. In the midst of this ascending medical career, Lloyd-Jones felt like a rope in a tug-of-war pulled in both directions, and he felt like he was, about, he was about to snap. There is this success in the world, which in and of itself is fine, but then there was this tug of God upon his soul, that there is something else that God has for him, and Lloyd-Jones was in the, really, the soul struggle of, of his life. He lost sleep, he lost weight. He, he, he lost health. He was already a thin little Welchman, and now he is an even thinner little Welchman. And I, I love this account that he retells, that one night he takes his wife, Beth Ann, to the theater. They go to see an opera, and he will say of this opera, I have never forgotten it. There's a theme in Wagner's opera, Tannhauser, the two pulls, the pull of the world, and then there's the singing chorus of the pilgrims, and the contrast between the two. I have very often thought of it. I know exactly what it means. I suppose I enjoyed the play, and he begins to talk about what happens when he walks out of the play. It was a black tie affair. The other people were dressed to the nines. It was 
somewhat of, a, of an elite group that he was there with. And as he comes out of the theater onto the street, there's a little Salvation Army group on the corner. There's a man standing on a box preaching the gospel, and there are people passing out tracts. And as people are walking back and forth, no one wants to make eye contact with the street preacher who looks so out of place in this setting. And Lloyd-Jones, throughout the whole play, is like, Lord, that is me. I'm being pulled in different directions. Which way do I go? What do I do with my life? And he says, when he looked up and saw that poor old street preacher preaching the gospel, Lloyd-Jones said in that moment, those are my people, and they will be my people. And at that moment, as it were, Lloyd-Jones decided to step out of the world's system, out of an ascending career, to stand with those who would be willing to stand for Christ and Lloyd-Jones crossed the line. It was a radical decision that he, that he made to leave his, his, his medical career. And Lloyd-Jones said, I, I, I want to preach and am determined to preach. The precise nature of my future activities remains to be settled, but nothing can and nothing will prevent my going about to tell people of the good news. And when the word was made known, it shocked London. It actually made the front page of the London Times that this young physician, with all of his brilliance, with all of his skill, the most gifted clinician of his day to diagnose symptoms and to trace it back to the disease, has stepped out of this and away from royalty in order to pursue the preaching of the Word of God. In fact, it made the front page of the London Times so quickly that Lloyd-Jones had not even had time to tell Sir Thomas Horder of his decision, the man under whom he served. And so Lloyd-Jones would express later, am I called to be a preacher or not? How do you know? He says, this is something that happens to you. In other words, God acts upon your soul. It is God dealing with you and God acting upon you by His Spirit. It is something you become aware of rather than something you do. In other words, you're passive, God is active, and God acts upon you. He says, it is thrust upon you. It is almost forced upon you, Lloyd-Jones says. I, I can relate to that. I have other men here today, a part of our Doctor of Ministry program. They, they can relate to that. Lloyd-Jones says, you do your utmost to push back and to rid yourself of this disturbance in your spirit, which comes in these various ways, but you reach the point that you cannot do so any longer. It becomes an obsession and so overwhelming that in the end you say, I can do nothing else. I cannot resist any longer. 
It's not something that you would like to do. It's something that you must do, and you would rather die than not do it. You would be miserable if you could not do it. And so Lloyd-Jones surrenders to what he perceives to be God's call upon his life. He said, a preacher is not a Christian who decides to preach. He does not just decide to do it. He does not even decide to take up preaching as a calling. It is God who commands preaching. It is God who sends out preachers. And the people were so amazed. They said, why would you give up this medical practice? You are doing so much good to other people. They said, we could understand if you were a bookie and involved with a mob, and, and you walked away from that in order to enter the ministry. You would walk away from something bad and evil in order to do something that is good and wholesome. We could understand that. And they said, if you were a drug dealer, we could understand that you would give up the corruption to society in order to become a preacher but not for you to be a physician who is helping people so much. Lloyd-Jones said, I love this quote, Lloyd-Jones said, I gave up nothing. I received everything. I count it the highest honor that God can confer on any man to call him to be a herald of the gospel. That's much like Charles Haddon Spurgeon who, who, who said that he would rather be a servant to the king of kings than be a king of a nation. So, Lloyd-Jones, 1926, he accepts a call to pastor a church in Wales. Now, we must understand, Lloyd-Jones had so many options to which he could have stepped into. Who wouldn't want the man on the front page of the London Times, I mean, the church will triple, quadruple, just to have Lloyd-Jones there, the notoriety that he would bring to the church. Lloyd-Jones walked away from every one of those possibilities, much like when Jonathan Edwards was voted out of his church. He could have gone to any number of pulpits. He chose to go to Upper State New York and minister to uh, Native Indians on a fifth-grade level. Lloyd-Jones went to this financially depraved area of Wales under the most difficult circumstances, to a church that had shrunk down to 93 people. And before he leaves to go to Wales, he marries Beth Ann Phillips, January the 8th, 1927, in London. And Lloyd-Jones, before he leaves there in London, is ordained into the ministry in a Calvinistic Methodist church. It's known as Whitfield's Tabernacle. George Whitfield from the 18th century, whenever he was in London, there were businessmen who built two different tabernacles, meaning large, uh, vast uh, meeting areas that as Whitfield is passing through town, you have two pulpits to preach in whenever you're in town. And so Lloyd-Jones is ordained into the ministry in Whitfield's Tabernacle in London, and he now heads... To Wales to minister. The year is 1927. It's also the year Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs. <laughs> Not in my notes. 
so he goes to Wales. It's also the year Bobby Jones won the Grand Slam, but anyway. Um, he goes to Aberavon, South Wales, to a little poverty-stricken area known as Sandfields. There to become the pastor of a church, and the name of this church is just really interesting, Forward Movement Mission Hall. Well, they were in reverse gear. (laughs) And the church had shrunk down to 93 members. Lloyd-Jones had no formal training, never been to Bible college, never been to seminary. But that brilliant mind and his devoted heart absorbed with the Word of God He inherits this church that was on life support as it was really a social gospel church with all forms of entertainment, literally. Saturday night, they hosted a play. The people in the church were a part of the drama team, and they would move the pulpit. They would take the pulpit out of the sanctuary and put it over against the wall, and all of these little people, I guess, wanting to be discovered, were a part of the drama team, and that was their outreach to get people into the church building. And so, as Lord Jones comes to Forward Movement Mission Hall, the first thing he does is he nails the pulpit to the floor. (laughs) This pulpit will no longer go back and forth. Now, it's okay for the pulpit to go up and down, okay? (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) If you catch my drift. (laughs) Vertical, good. Horizontal, bad. (laughs) But he was making a statement that this church will make it on the preaching of the Word of God. We're not here to tickle ears. We're not here to entertain. We're not trying to win the world by being worldly. We will preach the Word of God. Our people will live among the people. They will be a vibrant witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. His first sermon was 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. It was later put on his tombstone. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was his first sermon. Just like MacArthur's first sermon here was Matthew 7, 13, Enter by the narrow gate. And so from the the get-go, his first sermon... Lloyd-Jones was really on fire for God, and one by one, the church members began to be converted. One of the first converts was the chairman of his board. It's hard to do ministry with unconverted elders. Two years later, his own wife, Beth Ann, was converted under Lloyd-Jones's preaching. He had married an unconverted woman. He didn't know it. She didn't know it because she had never sat under real preaching of the Word of God that that preaches sound doctrine but calls for a commitment and searches the heart and elicits a response. And as she sat under her own husband's preaching, she came to the realization, if this is what it is to be a believer, I have never been born again. And the Lord found her and saved her. Beth Ann said after her conversion, I was for two years under Martin's ministry. 
before I really understood what the gospel was. I thought you had to be a drunkard or a prostitute to be converted. No, she wasn't too bad to be saved. She was too good to be saved. It was her self-righteousness that prevented her from seeing her own sin before a holy God, which caused her to flee to the cross of Christ, to be washed in the blood of the Savior who had come to seek and to save that which is lost. Ian Murray, who would later become an assistant in, at Westminster Chapel to Lloyd-Jones, describes really this early ministry. He, he seemed to be exclusively interested in the purely traditional part of church life which consisted of the regular Sunday services, 11 a.m., 6 p.m., a prayer meeting on Mondays, and a midweek meeting on Wednesdays. Everything else could go. I mean, this is like what Martin Luther said, the church has no business to ever meet if the Word of God is not in the center place. There's just no reason whatsoever to even meet unless the Word of God is in the very center that's what Murray, Ian Murray is saying concerning Lloyd-Jones's conviction. And thus, those activities, particularly designed to attract the outsiders, came to an end. The church was to advance, not by approximating to the world, but rather by representing in the world the true life and privilege of a child of God. So, Lloyd-Jones's ministry just begins to blossom the church there grew from 93 to over 400 in the midst of this virtually impossible ministry situation, and every addition, for the most part, was by conversion, not transfer of membership, by conversion. And invitations began to come in to Lloyd-Jones to come preach in large conferences, to hear this preaching. He went to London and preached in the Royal Albert Hall to a standing room only crowd, and he preached the gospel. He really saw himself as an evangelist to win souls to Christ. Invitations came from across the Atlantic. He came to the United States. He preached in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and, and in New York City. In one year alone, he preached in 55 conferences. People just recognized the brilliant truth that was pouring forth from his pulpit as the Word of God was being preached and the manner with which it was being preached. And a man named G. Campbell Morgan, who was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, just blocks from Buckingham Palace, was in the States, heard Lloyd-Jones preach. Westminster Chapel was the largest independent church in all of London. It's an incredible facility. And he heard Lloyd-Jones preach and invited Lloyd-Jones to come be his co-pastor. And there was a strategy that he would eventually turn the reins over to Lloyd-Jones, though, though it was unspoken. And so Lloyd-Jones accepted this call, and in 1938, he came to London left the obscurity of southern Wales and comes to the thriving metropolis of London at the very nerve center virtually of the world 
1938 begins what would be a 30-year pastorate at Westminster Chapel. First, he was the co-pastor for five years, and then G. Campbell Morgan stepped down. Lloyd-Jones assumed the full responsibility. He already had the confidence of the people. But the difference between G. Campbell Morgan and Lloyd-Jones was very noticeable. G. Campbell Morgan was more of what we would call a devotional preacher. Um, with all the encouragement and application that goes with that, but it, it lacked the steel girders of sound doctrine being taught. Lloyd-Jones, on the other hand, was theology on fire. He was a doctrinal preacher. And so, when Lloyd-Jones would take over, the church would really grow and advance to the next level of maturity. The other difference between the two, this is during World War II, and London is being bombed by the Germans. And whenever the, the air raid sirens would come on and the German uh, planes would be flying over and dropping their bombs, G. Campbell Morgan would immediately stop the sermon and dismiss the service, and they would go down into the basement. But Lloyd-Jones would keep preaching. <laughs> And so fixed in a trance almost upon God and the glory of God. This Westminster Chapel, London, I think there may be a picture. Yeah, there it is. I talked my way into that when it was in lockdown mode and was given a tour of this facility. It is absolutely stunning. It looks exactly like this to this day. It's not just one balcony, it's two balconies and it's a 360-degree balcony such that when you stand here to preach, it's not just that you're preaching here, you're preaching here, you're preaching here, but you're also preaching here and here and here. Of course, there is the the pipe organ in the middle, so I guess on the second tier is where uh, the people are, the first balcony is where the people are. But the church had shrunk during World War II. People were moving out of London and out into the suburbs to escape the German bombing. So, once again, Lloyd-Jones steps into a very difficult situation, demanding. And so, in 1938, he becomes the pastor of… associate pastor, really co-pastor of this church. 1943, G. Campbell Morgan retires, and now Lloyd-Jones is the sole voice crying in the wilderness. And for the next 25 years, he will be the pastor of this church. And as he does, he reestablishes Lectio Continua, which is Latin for the continuous exposition. He would just preach through books in the Bible. Sound familiar? Start in chapter 1, verse 1, and just sequentially work his way through books in the Bible. And he would move very slowly and very deliberately, even slower, if you can imagine this, than John MacArthur. (laughs) All four of my children went to the Master's University, and when I put my twins into uh, Master's University, they came here to uh, Grace Community Church for those many years. And as freshmen, MacArthur is in like Luke 8, And when they graduate four years later, he's like in Luke 11, you know. (laughs) So, but Lloyd-Jones moved even more deliberately than that. So, 
Uh, he preached 4,000 sermons in those 30 years. You can do the math on that. He preached every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and every Friday night. Just bank count on it. And all three were different. Sunday morning was preached to the believers in Christian living. Every Sunday night, he preached an evangelistic sermon that was intended to win souls to Christ. And the church members knew that. And they brought their neighbors, and they brought their work associates, and they brought their friends to sit under sermons that were directed to the heart. And remember now, he, he had been a, uh, an outstanding uh, clinician, and a clinician is trained to note what are the symptoms and then trace it back to the disease. He carried that into the pulpit. And in his evangelistic sermons, he would list, he would preach through the various different symptoms, greed, envy, pride. But there's only one remedy, and that is Jesus Christ. There's one disease, it's unbelief, and there's only one cure, and it is Jesus Christ. And so Lloyd-Jones, his pulpit became the dominant pulpit of the 20th century. And what is amazing, I have the account here of one man who wanted, he, he, he drove to hear Lloyd-Jones, and he walks into the building, and when Lloyd-Jones steps into the pulpit, the man is so disappointed because this can't be Lloyd-Jones. I came to hear Lloyd-Jones, and there's this thin little man standing up here. So here, 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 here's what he said. There was a, a thin congregation, because this is during the war. A small man in a collar and tie walked almost apologetically to the platform and called the people to worship. I remember thinking that Lloyd-Jones must be ill and that his place was being taken by one of his office bearers. This illusion was not dispelled during the first part of the service. In other words, I had no reason to doubt that this is not Lloyd-Jones during the first part of the service, though I was impressed by the quiet reverence of the man's prayers and his reading of the Bible. Ultimately, he announced his text and began his sermon in the same quiet, quiet voice. Then a curious thing happened. For the next 40 minutes, I became completely unconscious of everything except the word that this man was speaking. Not his words, mark you, but someone standing behind them and in them and speaking through them. I didn't realize it then, but I had been in the presence of the mystery of preaching when a man is lost in the message he proclaims. That's Lloyd-Jones, God-centered, God-exalting preaching, theology coming through a man who is on fire. Ian Murray continues to comment about this era in the 1950s. Lloyd-Jones was virtually alone in England. In other words, he wasn't caught up in the trends. He wasn't caught up in the gospel gimmicks. He was virtually alone in England in engaging in what he meant by expository preaching. To expound is not simply to give the correct grammatical sense of a verse or passage. It is rather to 
set out the principles and the doctrines which the words are intended to convey. True expository preaching is therefore doctrinal preaching. It is preaching which addresses specific truths from God to man and then makes demands upon the listener, calling the listener to respond to the relevance of this truth that is being preached. In other words, it's not enough just to put it out there. You've got to call for the verdict. You've got to ask for the order. You've got to elicit the response. And Lloyd-Jones understood this. I've listed, I'll just let you gaze at it for a moment, his Sunday morning sermons, 1943 to 53, the first 10 years as the lead pastor, he preached through 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Philippians, 1 John, Habakkuk, Sermon on the Mount, which was a landmark series, John 17, And then from 53 to 68, Psalm 73, spiritual depression. Let me just give you a quick backdrop on that. He is going, it's Sunday morning, sitting at the breakfast table, and he is going to preach on, I can't remember what he was going to preach on, and he's just thinking and meditating as his Bible. He's reading uh, one of the Psalms, Psalm 42. And he comes to this passage, why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. It just really grabbed his heart. He had a little piece of paper and just began to sketch out a few thoughts, put it in his pocket, and as he's going to church, I'm going to preach this, Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Lord John says you have to preach to your own heart. You have to remind yourself of what you already know. The psalmist is preaching to himself, not to God, not to the worshipers. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your trust in God. So Lord Jones extemporaneously preaches that sermon. The response was overwhelming as England is coming out from under the debris of World War II. And he continues, makes it into a a series, 21 Sermons, 1954, became the best-selling book that he would ever write. Why? Because it addressed the heart because it addressed where people live, because it was so relevant and so practical, yet rooted and grounded in sound biblical exposition. Series on revival. Ephesians. Can you imagine this? 260 sermons. There's only six chapters. (laughs) 260 sermons. It became a landmark. It took him eight years to preach through Ephesians. You know, he's famous for Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God. Stop right there. (laughs) And a whole sermon on but God. Colossians 1, John 1 through 4, 126 sermons. I mean, as MacArthur says, deeper is better than shallower. Slower is better than faster. He's drilling down 
the Sunday evening sermons, I just have a sampling of them, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 40, Psalm 107, uh, a series on authority, Galatians 6, verse 4, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of Christ. I'm crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me, Psalm 1, Isaiah 1, Isaiah 5, joy unspeakable, Acts 1 through 8. J.I. Packer, you know that name, J.I. Packer? J.I. Packer sat under the preaching of Lloyd-Jones for one year there in London, came to the Sunday evening services, and and it's really... Lloyd-Jones said, I've never heard such preaching in my life. He said, the preaching of Lloyd-Jones came with the force of an electrical shock, bringing to me more of a sense of God than any other man. And that's really the genius of Lloyd-Jones' preaching. It is as though he is bringing the presence of God to the people. He says, there was in the doctor's preaching thunder and lightning that no tape and no transcript ever did or could capture. He had, he had power, I mean, to meditate a realization, mediate uh, the realization of, of God's presence. In the pulpit, he was a, a lion, fierce on matters of principle, and austere in his gravity, able in his prime both to growl and to roar in the pulpit. Packer makes this acknowledgement. It was in his evangelistic preaching that the personal electricity of his pulpit surged. All of his energy went into his preaching, of which he had a good deal, the God-given liveliness. That was the word John Calvin used of his own preaching, that it must be lively preaching. The anointing of God's Holy Spirit was upon Lloyd-Jones. His wife, Beth Ann, was asked by some preachers and by some men, explain Lloyd-Jones to us. How has all this happened? She said, you'll never understand my husband unless you understand two things. Number one, he was a man of prayer. And everything that you have seen is a result of prayer. Second thing is he was an evangelist who sought to win souls to Christ. You think of him as an, evan- as an expositor, and he was an expositor, and he was the man who brought back expository preaching to our generation, but he used his exposition to a higher end to win souls to Christ. And he would go throughout England and Scotland and Wales throughout the week and uh, on a train and preach in various places, and I've preached in churches throughout England, and the pastor will show me where Lloyd-Jones had signed the church registry. Lloyd-Jones had come to preach there, and it, it so supported the, the young preachers in England to have Lloyd-Jones stand in your pulpit and, and preach. But when Lloyd-Jones would get on that train Monday morning, it would not be the Sunday morning sermon he put in his briefcase to preach around England, and it would not be the Friday night Roman study. He took the Sunday night sermon and put it in the briefcase. 
which was the evangelistic sermon because he wanted to win souls to Christ. 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 says, preach the word. Verse 5 says, do the work of an evangelist. In all preaching of the word of God, you must do the work of an evangelist. And Jesus said to his disciples, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. If you're not fishing, you're not following. Those whom the Lord leads, he leads to be fishers of men. The Friday evenings are what we most normally think of Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones on Friday evening preached through Romans... Um, it was a magisterial series, 372 sermons through Romans on Friday night. Well, that was only his Bible study Friday night. We normally think of that as his Sunday morning sermons. No, those were not given on Sunday morning. That was given on Friday night to ground the church in even deeper in sound doctrine. Well... I just looked at my clock, and I've, I've got like three minutes to go, which is just uh, a terrifying thought for me, <laughs> more so for you. Um, so, as you're running the slides, I, I'm going to have to fast forward. In 1968, he comes to an unexpected end of his ministry. He comes down with colon cancer. In March 1st, 1968, he preached his final sermon at the chapel. And for the next 12 years, the Lord extended his life, and he had an itinerant ministry. He edited his own sermons that have been now republished for us. And I really believe that he, during that itinerant ministry time, was really the crowning time of his ministry and was the force that helped the Reformed resurgence come across the Atlantic he came to uh, Westminster Seminary and gave his, those lectures on preaching that is now the greatest book on preaching that there is, uh, Preaching and Preachers. But I just need to come to the end. He died on June the 8th, 1980, two days before his death. He wrote, Do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. So he's buried in a welch graveyard near Cardigan, Wales. Let me just tell you three things to take from this. Number one, the necessity to follow God's will, whatever the cost. Lloyd-Jones becomes a living example to us of someone who walked away from something very prestigious in order to follow what he perceived to be the will of God. There is nothing wrong in having an important job in this world. What is important is that you follow God's will, wherever that takes you. And Lloyd-Jones was willing to walk away. What may seem irrational to others in the decisions you make, from a worldly perspective, all that matters is, is that you please God. So, the necessity to follow God's will, whatever the cost. The second is the necessity to stand alone, if need be, in following Christ. Lloyd-Jones stood alone. He he, he wasn't caught up in the trends of the day. He, he, He wasn't a part of the crowd, following the crowd. 
He was willing to break from the pack and stand alone if need be, which he did. And it was in that standing alone that he impacted the world. It was like Athanasius, contramundum against the world. That was Lloyd-Jones. And so for you and me, we must be willing at times in our Christian lives to stand alone, to not look to the left or not look to the right, but to look upward. As John Knox once said, God plus one still makes a majority. If you please God, it does not matter who you displease. And if you displease God, it does not matter who you please. All that matters in your Christian life, ultimately, is that you please God. And the third thing, the last thing that I would set before you by way of application is we learn from Lloyd-Jones the necessity to be born again. We see in his life a person can be in a church, in fact, even in a good church, even like this church and not be born again. A person can be doctrinally sound and agree with the doctrinal statement and not be born again. You can be morally straight. You can be even politically conservative and not be born again. And so the question for each one of you here today as I bring this to conclusion is, are you born again? Not are you in church, not do you own a Bible, not do you like to hear Bible preaching, but has God done an interior work in your soul in which He has impregnated your heart with the Word of God? Is the life of God in you? Jesus said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. You can walk an aisle, you can join a church, you can sing in the choir, you can be baptized and not be born again. The bottom line issue for each one of us here today is Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, except one be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you've never been born again, I would urge you this moment to call upon God and say, God, birth me into your kingdom. And what is is your responsibility is to believe in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever, that's you, whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you are like Lloyd-Jones, suddenly becoming consciously aware that there is not the life of God within me, that there is an an emptiness about me that can only be filled by God, by the life of God, then I would urge you this moment to turn to the Lord, to turn away from the crowd, turn away from the world, turn away from a life of sin, and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world to live a sinless and perfect life and to die a substitutionary sin-bearing death upon the cross who was buried and on the third day He was raised from the dead. He 
He sits at the right hand of God the Father, and the Bible says, And whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've never called upon the name of the Lord, I urge you to do so this very moment. It's not go home and pray about it. It is this very moment, a decisive moment in your life as you stand at the intersection of life, that you enter through the narrow gate with that step of faith, a decisive step of faith in which you intentionally commit your life and your soul to Jesus Christ who came into this world to save sinners. May God do that in your life even this morning. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this moment that we have had to spend together. Thank you for what you did in the life of your servant, Martin Lloyd-Jones, so many years ago. And he is a discipler of us. We all need to be discipled. We all need to be taught and trained. And he is one who has gone before us, and he's a part of the cloud of witnesses who bear witness to us of vital truths of the Christian faith. So bless my brothers and sisters here today. And for any who are outside of Christ, may this be the day that they are birthed into your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.